0: This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Fight. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought
1: to you by Pograin Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Evil Deity Motivations. Trap Streets. GMless Hill Folk. And
0: Saxophone Destiny.
1: Everyone remembers their first trip to the island of Alamarha. Huh? You mean that strange, conspiracy-ridden island off the coast of North Africa, known for its lax regulations and mysteriously authoritarian government? But I thought it was in the Mediterranean. Didn't everyone?
0: Atlas Games, the publisher of Feng Shui and Unknown Armies, is celebrating
1: their recent Kickstarter success. You're talking about the Kickstarter for the new edition of Over the Edge, the legendary role-playing game of Weird Urban Danger? Indeed, and dear listeners, you're
0: invited to join other backers by pre-ordering the game via Backer. I'm putting on my
1: state-sponsored party hat as we speak.
0: If rampant New Age occultism, gangs of baboons, murderous assassins, and mad scientists in a modern-day setting of weirdness and menace tickle your
1: fancy, this is the game for you. Over the Edge is coming to game stores in 2019, but you can pre-order on Backerkit now at atlas-games.com slash kickstartote. It's exactly
0: the same Alamarha
1: you always knew. Only this time, it's different. The Rattle of Dice, The Crunch of Doritos, The Thump of Miniatures, and The Benevolent Gaze of Peter Frampton, coming alive, welcome us once more, not just to the shag-carpeted confines of the gaming hut, but also to an all-request issue segment? Episode. Episode. Episode even. Episode of our beloved podcast. And speaking of things that our beloved, our beloved Patreon backer, Gene Ha, asks... Or actually sets up and then eventually asks. Yes,
0: Gene's question is sufficiently good that
1: I left in
0: uh, the, the long preamble. As you know, I'm a preamble snipper, uh, right.
1: but, uh, but <laughs> this one requires uh, the entire go. It requires the setup, and, uh, you know, what the heck. All right, Gene doesn't have to letter it, so he figured he can just throw it up there on the page. <laughs> F20 worlds work according to rules set up by the gods. Postulate, Good and evil and other, the gods set up a system whereby evil mortals build dungeons, and the dungeon fills up with monsters. Then good mortals bust through the dungeons to loot and murder Hobo. Obviously, the good deities use dungeons to train and enrich their champions, but what do the evil deities get out of having their followers build and maintain... Dungeons, an excellent question. Evil considered as a practical engineering problem. Uh Robin, <laughs> what's <laughs> well, what's your we've take met engineers? They um so Nergal and Set always um uh, doing renovations instead of getting out there and stealing rubies and stuff?
0: Right. So uh, mention of uh engineering uh in fact sets us up for uh what is going on in your uh standard F twenty cosmology in where the uh, morality uh, not only literally exists in a force that can be measured by uh, magic, uh, but is also uh, a, a set of scaffolds. It's it's a physical arrangement, and so the uh, good alignments, uh, if you remember your alignment chart, are up on top. And then your neutral alignments are kind of in the middle, and your evil alignments are down. Uh, at the bottom and of course this should come as no surprise uh to those who know your uh, uh Christian mythology because of course uh the uh virtue is up in heaven and evil is down in hell and we mere humans uh mortals are along uh, in the middle are, are in the middle and so uh it makes sense therefore that uh, the uh, forces of evil live and work and uh, build underground and, uh, so one of the questions then is, is this their design? Is this their choice? Are they choosing to live underground or is this in fact where they have been consigned? And so I would argue that the, the, what they really want to do is they want to get up at least onto the surface world in order to conduct, uh, you know, their own, uh, raids and depredations and to, uh, the more sophisticated of them, of course, wish to, uh, corrupt, Mortals uh, morally, as well as uh, rip them apart physically, and eventually, I suppose they want to work their way all the way up to heaven and then destroy that and send that smashing uh, down to ground. So, uh, the reason, first of all, they may be in dungeons underground is that's just their starting point—that's square one for them. That's their, their the first uh, snake, and now they're looking for some ladders.
1: It's it's because it's because evil lives down in the middle of the earth with the ball of fire and the rest of it, and just like the dwarves, if you dig too deep. That's what you're going to hit is a vein of evil. And like groundwater, sometimes the evil's up close to the surface and sometimes you got to drill down deep, but eventually you're going to hit evil no matter what happens. So evil as geology is one possibility. Another possibility is that also in your standard F20 world, there was a great and glorious past during which everything was better. Uh, Maybe you were run by the elves. Maybe it was a great human empire that had conquered the world and done all the cool stuff that human empires can do. And then that empire, or those elves, succumbed to the, uh, inevitable effects of living around in the world. They became senescent, they became corrupt, they became old and tired, and they fell apart. But they had built all of these, uh, dungeons and whatnots, uh, for other reasons, uh, to store weapons in, or, uh, as prisons, or, or in zillion other cases. And evil, because what evil does is it goes into the part of you that you are not tending, uh, because you have to tend your spiritual garden at all times, or else it is overgrown by the crabgrass of pride and lust and whatnot. Uh you must uh if you're not tending it Evil will just sort of filter in and that's what happens to once the elves or the human empire have fallen and the good, uh, superpower is no longer doing its, uh, thing. Evil just opportunistically filters in. So in this case, uh, the dungeons are not necessarily holes dug toward hell. They are areas where opportunistic effect infection happens and that might be in a dungeon down under the earth or it might be in a city of an invincible overlord, say, because it's too big for human administration to really keep all the evil out so it sort of filters in through the sewers and uh through the the, the the some of the houses and palaces and stuff
0: right and often they are these are complexes that used to be cities above ground or, or networks above ground or used to be the underground part of an active city and then the uh sands of time have come along and, and buried it and uh you know creatures have come in and and as you suggest it's it's essentially uh opportunistic Now, if we then, however, take the question uh, at face value and assume a world in Mm -hmm. which the evil deities want dungeons specifically to exist, as they exist in the economy of an F-20 world, well, previously we talked about uh, moral corruption. And so often it seems like, oh, well, this is just their stronghold. This is where they live. This is their invasion point uh, to gather and go and attack the Earth. But a dungeon, when you go down into it, doesn't really look like that. It doesn't look like a garrison, and it doesn't respond like a garrison. There is one uh, sort of later uh, Gygax uh, D&D module where the creatures are all aware of each other and all start to attack you once you attack some of them. But, of course, that busts the whole form of the dungeon, which assumes that you can attack the residents of the complex in nice, digestible uh, segments rather than being suddenly overcome by a, a wave of uh, bugbears and, and mothmen and what have you, and whatever, you know, boiling out and overwhelming you. So they don't really seem like installations for an imminent invasion. Uh, what they seem like is a situation that's built in order for random packs of adventurers to come in and kill the residents and take their stuff which I know seems weird. So why would the deities do that? Well, the deities do that because, of course, they want the great potential heroes of the realm to become mere murder hobos. It is a moral trap uh, to suck you into evil. So, uh, you know, you're the, the new generation of potential great heroes for the realm that will win not just military, but um moral victories victories of virtue but then you realize that you got to get together and well in order for us to have a full group here we do need a thief hmm. okay let's let, let's have a thief among us and let's have a thief be our friend and then what always happens with the uh this these neo uh heroes as they get down in the dungeon and oh look what has happened the thief has uh looked at the word thief on his character sheet uh sometimes it says rogue on there, but he knows what it means. Yeah, <laughs> he knows what it means. And rogue, he, Rogues, just what thieves call themselves when they're worried. Exactly. Uh, and uh, so he steals from the rest of the party or does tries his backstabbing on the rest of the party. And then the survivors kill the thief. And guess what? Everybody else has been corrupted and sucked into evil. The dungeon is a big moral honeypot designed to suck you in and drown you, uh, just like a little bit, bit of rosé in the bottom of the glass uh, sucks in and drowns fruit flies.
1: <laughs> um, I have another uh, process-oriented theory that even requires less uh, moral uh, gloss than yours. So we're moving ever further towards a systems administration theory of this. But (laughs) my uh, notion is that the dungeon, because because, as you say, it doesn't behave like a garrison. It doesn't behave like a strong point. Even if a, a necromancer or whatever is running it, there's always a zillion other monsters running around causing problems. The thing that the evil entities want is to have a bunch of what you could call experiments or test tubes or environments or terraria in which various evils are allowed to compete and fester such that at some point one of them will prove to be so powerful that it can bust out of its little jar and spread over the surface world and eat uh, a decent folk. And the goal of the evil entities, because they don't care about what the orcs do or don't want, the goal of the evil entities is to breed a super orc in steady combat against uh ank eggs and owl bears and whatever else it can find uh and so the goal is to create something that is super evil and super powerful and super willing to clamber up out of that dungeon and and eat folk and being evil and therefore being full of a uh, a uh, of vile creativity but maybe not so full of patience they sort of do a half assed job of building any one of these as a particularly good uh, reagent to distill evil but they've built a ton of them there's like hundreds of these things all over the world and that's because they figure like Stalin says speaking of evil overlords quantity has a quality all its own and they as long as they have a uh, hundred dungeons, surely 1% of them will produce this new race of super orc or this new uh super powerful mind flare or whatever it is that the evil gods want to uh, uh develop in all of these um, uh, test tubes. And you can think of it as uh, someone trying a bunch of different recipes for a, a new exciting flavor compound or a new exciting uh, uh cancer drug or maybe a new exciting... Weaponized flu culture. Maybe uh, the gods of evil. Maybe Set is basically doing biological warfare here.
0: Right. It's basically a, a, a mechanism to put uh, creatures under evolutionary pressure, and the adventurers coming into the dungeon are just a higher, higher, perhaps the highest form of evolutionary pressure that evil deities have done their math and they know, you know, that. Ank eggs kill a lot fewer orcs than adventurers do. So again, they put all the things in the dungeon that will attract adventurers because they're sort of the, the ultimate test. And in fact, the ultimate, uh, enemy that they want to, uh, be able to send out their super orcs to kill. So again, it's, it's a lure. You're trying to bring them in. In this case, uh, you are doing, you know, they're, they're playing a long game, uh, but of course, uh, you know, they're evil deities. They, they are uh, immortal, and they've read the front of the book. They know the timeline is already unaccountably a hundred thousand years old, so exactly it, it, a little a few more years of uh, honing their orcs means nothing to them
1: Also, they don't really care whether the orcs have a good or a bad day because they're evil. So. No, because the current orcs, they're not good yet. They're not right. cooked because they're, 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 they're getting
0: killed by the adventurers.
1: Right. So the adventurers are, are basically just going in and slaughtering the, um, the pectin in which they hope something really great will grow.
0: Right. Exactly. And so, uh, it is really all an exercise to, to create a better orc. Now, of course, as you suggest, they already have mind flayers and stuff. They have the really tough villains, but they're, Uh, looking for, you know, the best sort of cost, speaking of engineering, best cost benefit analysis, something as cheap to produce as orcs, but
1: more effective. And also something that won't get its own ideas about rebelling and building its own shadowy dream realm like the mind flayers will.
0: Yes, exactly. That's the problem is that, uh, so far they've, they have created through this system of pressure some, uh, super effective things, but then of course they, they always develop free will and turn on them and, uh, because um, they're, they're evil. And, you know, they're more expensive to maintain. They insist on having, you know, much more treasure in their rooms than the, mm-hmm. than the orcs who are satisfied with six copper pieces and a sharpened bone. So, uh, yeah, so I think a, a combination, I guess, really of the moral hazard and, uh, orc improvement plan. And of course there's the thought that the, Deities may well be in competition with one
1: another, right? Because evil de- deities notoriously don't get along. So- right. So each each dungeon might be like the the, the wondercomer or the showplace. Or the collection, uh, it's like uh, like they're all a bunch of, uh, of of bears fans, and they have to have the best trophies and and programs and memorabilia. And so it's like, oh oh, you have orcs that are signed by Nirgal. Well, I have orcs that are signed by Pazuzu. So my orcs are cooler than your orcs. And in fact, that may be part of the deal, right? There may be a
0: uh, a wager or some sort of a contest, and therefore there may be even like a point system where it's like, okay, well, if you just use the standard 10 feet corridors, uh, those don't cost you any points toward your dungeon complex right. design. However, if you, you know, uh, install this weirdo trap here, will that, that oh, cost more? And that's,
1: and that's why they allow the, uh, good guys to come in is that way they don't have to paint all these orcs.
0: Exactly right. That, yeah. uh, you know, and, and if you're succeeding in causing a, a certain amount of suffering as well, that, that of course is the obvious point that we haven't considered is that uh, the DDs may be just drawing psychic pain Imagery from the dungeons, and that's why they're horrible. And the creatures who uh, live there don't really want to live there, but they're sort of trapped, and they're all afraid of each other. And then these super predators from the surface uh, come in, and when they're not backstabbing each other, they they kill the residents. So it may, in fact, be uh, you know giant uh, cauldrons of fear and distress uh, that they're feeding off of. And um, again, that's why they you know have these tempting secret doors for adventurers to come in because. Uh, no one causes uh, more distress to kobolds and, and the like than uh, than the arrival of a well-equipped uh, dungeon party.
1: So the so the evil gods uh, that are basically uh, uh, vampires that feed on, as you say, fear and, and death and pain. If no one comes to their dungeon, they have to send out a, a, a mysterious old man with a map.
0: Exactly. The, so the the guy with the hat probably gets a commission. Mm-hmm. He gets a piece. The, yeah. Sure. Yeah um and if that fails you've got to send out your upper level creatures to go and ravage the countryside in order to attract adventurers and and if there is competition between deities uh you know they may uh work fairly hard at uh you know getting the uh adventures that they that they need uh to continue to feed their their cycle of, of horror and death so uh, you know that may be why all the treasure is in there and uh uh, there's, you know, there's probably some sort of circular sort of, uh, economic system going on there, but I guess we don't have to figure that one out because I would say that we are at the end of this segment. We've delved deep uh, beneath the earth of the premise. And, and, and can, look at
1: that. Yeah. There's nothing bad down here except a commercial. Exactly. Take that, dwarves. In the 1960s, the CIA hunted Yeti in Tibet, built aircraft that touched the edge of space, and experimented on mind control. But there's more to that story. In the 1960s, the FBI infiltrated occult movements, wiretapped congressmen, and winked at the mafia. Yeah, but
0: there's more to that story.
1: In the 1960s, the Marines invaded Cambodia, the Navy listened to the Pacific deeps, and the Air Force covered up UFOs. Oh boy, is there more to that story. Those stories all touched the surface of the secret world, the poisonous, unnatural world world of the Cthulhu mythos
0: a government program named majestic tries to weaponize the unnatural a government program named delta green tries to destroy the unnatural
1: in the fall of delta green you play the agents of delta green caught between your oath to america and your duty to humanity Caught between a world on fire and the icy cold of other dimensions.
0: Written by Kenneth Haidt, The Fall of Delta Green adapts Arc Dream Publishing's Delta Green the role-playing game to the award-winning gumshoe engine.
1: The Fall of Delta Green is a standalone game of standing alone against inevitable destruction. Delta
0: Green falls in 1970. The world falls shortly thereafter.
1: The Fall of Delta Green. Grab it in your store or from the Pelgrane Press website.
0: It's Delta Green. It's the 1960s, in gumshoe. What are you waiting for? The end of the world? The compass rose and the grid pattern tell us that we've once more entered that most uh, rigorously defined of huts, the cartography hut. And this time around, Kent, I don't, I don't know whether it's the proximity to chronotons or just the fact that we've done more than 1,200 segments over the years. But I part of me thinks we have done this topic before. So uh, if we have, people, uh, you will uh, soon realize why it is appropriate that I have this feeling that I've already gone down the street and can't find it anymore. Uh, so please, A, indulge us, and B, don't tell us. <laughs> uh, so uh, Patreon backer Yuri Horneman would like to know about Trap Street's and parch marks. And of course, uh, trap streets can are imaginary, uh, roadways that map companies put on their maps in order to catch other map companies plagiarizing them. Uh, but woe betide the person who tries to actually, uh, go there because there are
1: imaginary places. Right. And, uh, as we know from fiction, nothing good ever happens by going to an imaginary place. I mean, unless I guess you're the chosen one, but in that case, you know, whatever. Nothing we'd say can stop you,
0: right, but sometimes you you have to go to an imaginary place, and if you're looking for a portal between realities, uh actually finding a trap street is uh you know uh portal number one i would say
1: yeah um in uh in Kraken, China Mieville has the trap streets as sort of these secret little wainscot places where uh uh magic monsters can hang out without getting pestered by tourists so in a way, you could say that the London A to Z is, you know, part of the uh, part of the kayfabe that the uh, magic uh, guys put together uh, and maybe the the little alley where all the uh, magicians and vampires live in your city was there first. And then they went and bullied the map company into leaving them off the map. Where they really bullied all the map companies except one into leaving them off the map. And so it's just like it, Rand McNally has put the street on that has the vampires on it, but, um, uh, Google Maps has the street on that has the werewolves on it. Perhaps they're, you know, um, the, 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 each one is, is in the pay of the other one and is uh, engaged in a lengthy cartographic war, uh, back and forth. Um, yeah, the, the, there's a, the notion of the trap street as sort of a ghost place is, I think it, Nothing really about a concept like this is a cliché, but that seems like that would be a cliché if people cared about trap streets, right, Robin?
0: <laughs> if, if it was better known, it would be
1: a cliché. Yeah, as such, right. it is merely a motif. Right, but it's like the obvious motif. If you think, what can I do as a game master with a trap street? The answer is, oh, it's, it's a street that, that haunts a place and just shows up, and you, when you drive down it, oh, well, now you're in the Carcosa or whatever, and bad things are going to happen to you. Um,
0: Your mention of Google Maps uh, raises the question of what, happens in an era of uh, satellite navigation to uh, trap streets. First of all, you know, does Google map have trap streets or is it just content to let anyone base their maps on its maps? I don't know what their policy is on that, whether they're creating imaginary places. But obviously, if they have street view
1: and uh, traditionally people who make trap streets don't tell you that they did it because that's the whole point
0: of a trap. Right. So, you know, the Google motto is don't be evil brackets. Uh, but don't ask us about trap (laughs) streets or, or China. (laughs) Right. Uh, but it's harder today to create a trap street, uh, because you have to fake the, uh, create a composite street, uh, and put it up on street view and it has to actually match the rest of the area and look smooth and look real. So is it now a process, uh, at Google headquarters? Do they have to like build sets? Do they create a facade? Uh, for pe- for the uh, vehicle to drive past and photograph and uh, and what happens when someone monkeys with that facade, right? That that may be part of how something becomes more magical and more real is uh, if someone uh, at uh, Google Maps has a sort of a uh, I don't want to say esoteric bent because I've already done an adventure <laughs> with uh, mm-hmm. Google Maps being exploited by. Esoterrorists who, uh, make sure there's monster attacks along the way when the, the car is coming by. But there's all sorts of, uh, of possibilities of, uh, you know, and what happens when you tell your vehicle to navigate to a trap street. But when you get there, uh, you know, is the, is the vehicle and the global net, uh, good enough to, uh, generate a hallucination of that, uh, of that street so that everything seems to be, uh, fine? And, and if so, Uh, What are they doing and why are they doing that? It seems like a long way to go to avoid uh, someone else infringing your copyright. But clearly from this discussion, it's obvious that they have done it and are doing it. So uh, the second part of this question is parch marks. What's a parch
1: mark? A parch mark is uh, kind of the opposite of a phantom uh, street that was put there by a cartographer. A parch mark is a feature of the earth that emerges when there is a drought and when you have super hardcore droughts um, it reveals where, Uh, because the the vegetation becomes so thin on the ground, it reveals where there were features underneath the ground that you hadn't been able to see. So, uh, the sort of the standard version of the parch mark is that you have a drought, and then people look down and they say, "What's that straight line running across that field?" And you dig there, and it turns out there was like a Roman road there, or there was a, uh, or there was a a a Roman wall of some kind. There's been a lot of
0: Iron Age forts uh, showing up due to the drought in Europe uh, this uh, this
1: summer, and so you have they had a drought in, in. in Salisbury or Wiltshire about ten years ago and they were looking at it on, you know, aerial photographs because if you've got an aerial photograph of Stonehenge, why wouldn't you look at it? And it turns out there's like a lot of other stuff around Stonehenge that even even Stonehenge, which is probably the most single excavated and examined uh, megalithic site in the world. Um, there was more stuff that they didn't know about and it just sort of showed up because of this drought. And there was a bunch of barrows and, and caves and things that were that were around the site. And so that uh, implies uh, if you flip it on its head, that perhaps the drought does not reveal what was there before uh, but it summons it out of some parched and bad world and that as the connection between, uh, our normal earth and this, uh, parched, uh, desert, uh, Lang or whatever you want to say, uh, becomes more manifest, uh, bits of Lang seep out into our world and sort of, uh, show up and, and take over like spots on the photograph.
0: And, uh, there's all sorts of other, uh, analogies to that that we can look at as climate change uh, starts to uh, accelerate and the uh, permafrost is melting there's all sorts of things that the uh, the permafrost can start to uh, disgorge that are essentially you know a different version of the same phenomenon where uh, you know the extreme weather is either revealing things that were there all along or is uh, causing uh, things that are just part of our uh, you know dark imaginings connected to our uh, worries about climate change are, are manifesting as such. And so that's an even more obvious plot hook for a storyline is just a terrible new archaeological site appears, uh, in the farmer's field down the way or, uh, you're up in the Arctic doing tests and uh, what, is there anything about something thawing out of the ice
1: when you've got an arctic mm. installation?
0: Is there mm. some, I don't know. I'm trying to think. It seems like there's cultural... something
1: where people are in an ice field and they yeah. stumble they on find something. Mm. I am
0: sure. I am sure our listeners will supply the necessary cultural reference there.
1: Right? Yeah. Probably in the in the in the comments. Yeah. But yeah, that um, that sort of uh, large scale melt out or 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 burn out or parch out um, to an extent any sort of earth penetrating tomography does the same thing without having to have a horrible drought happen, so satellite imagery shows these regular lines all over the world and people go down and it's like, oh, well, that was where that Inca city was, or that's where, uh, the lost city of Ubar was, or that's where whatever happens to have been canals a lot of times in, uh, places like Persia or Central Asia where there was a thriving canal, uh, system before somebody, <clears throat> the Mongols, um, came through and, and, and knocked it over. You can look down from space and see that obviously because the hydrography of the region was different for perhaps as many as 3,500 years, uh, in some places that, yep, you, you look down and you can see a, a, a long strip of differential uh, vegetation or differential soil, uh, and know that that's where, uh, some Sogdian or Persian, uh, monarch had a canal built.
0: And so this, uh, you know, again, gives you your, uh, premise into the adventure where, uh, a an entire complex that was not known before is discovered, and you're uh, the archaeologist and their uh, trusty uh, group of uh, friends and dilettantes, and you go in, and uh, you know that's your prelude to your your classic uh, horror of uh, you know uncovering uh, that which was meant to remain covered, and uh, learning stuff is bad, you know that's that's a basic part of almost all horror, and yeah. uh, so this is a uh, whether you're learning about a uh, non-existent street that is not quite as non-existent as you thought it was, uh, or a street that you thought existed and it turns out it doesn't anymore, but you have, have firm memories of it, or, uh, some ancient f- fort or tunnel complex under the ground. Those are all, uh, ways in to, uh, discover whatever the, uh, the monster of the week is. And, uh, as soon as we've discovered a monster on the week, it's time for us to run screaming away from the monster of the week because... Right. We're not monster fighters. We're game designers. We're the Uh,
1: remarkably attractive people in the opening.
0: Right. Uh, But the more engaging and charming a commercial is, the more monsters are repelled and afraid of it. And so if we just slip uh, past this commercial, they won't be able to come and get us.
1: Ken, who are the werewolves of Dacia? They are the descendants of the other son, uh, Romulus's twin... That sounds rita. fabulous. Where can I learn more? In Volume 1 of The Best of Phoenix, now available in PDF at Drive-Thru RPG.
0: That must mean that all three volumes of The Best of Phoenix are available separately, or in a value-conscious omnibus edition. When you're typing it into the search engine, you're typing F-E-N-I-X...
1: logically related, but related by their love of role-playing. That's the best of Phoenix volumes one to three. The first of many gaming wonders to come from Askfageln. Ask for Askfageln by name. And don't forget, that's F-E-N-I-X.
0: And remember, that's in English, not in Swedish. In English, not Swedish.
1: Protect this podcast from going down the street of doom by joining such Patreon backers as...
0: Will Ferguson and Fifi Payat. Jake. Pedro Garcia. Samwise Crider. And Stephen Hammond.
1: It's time once again to ask Ken and Robin. So let's ask Ken and Robin. Patreon backer Jacques DeVilliers asks, I suspect Robin, what advice would you have for a GM-less version of Hillfolk if you'd advise it at all? And I am here to tell Jacques that Robin has, in fact, in, in the past advised a GMless version of Hillfolk, so I'm sure he must have delightful advice. Robin?
0: No, in fact, I have not advised this. What? So this is a, a uh, most-asked question, and hopefully we'll be able to open this discussion more up into sort of a general uh, game design uh, discussion. But the thing about uh, Hillfolk, that this is an oft-asked question, is there a version without a GM? And uh, my answer is always, if I thought of a way of solving that problem, I would have done so. It would have been in the game book. Uh, because it's a thing that people frequently ask. And and I guess one advantage of that is uh, you sort of need a slightly larger quorum for a hill folk uh, group uh, in that if you're down to just three players and the GM, that's really not enough people... The geometry keep, doesn't work. Yeah, to, to keep right. the, the... They're not enough different people to do scenes with over the course of an evening, and it's a little more challenging. So if you have a small group... Uh, you have a desire for a GM-less game. Uh, also I think the the desire is simply that it is a story game, therefore story games should be GM-less. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, that on it, there's some sort of, uh, cognitive dissonance ar- around the idea that there's a GM. But, uh, as someone who has GM'd a lot of Drama System, I still think it is, uh, essential and don't have a solution to the various problems that getting rid of the GM, uh, raises. So uh, in practice, when you play uh, hill folk, for example, you actually really need somebody to kind of act as an editor when two people are uh, conducting a scene. And once they've kind of wrung all the juice out of the
1: scene and are kind of repeating themselves, someone has to be the guy who says. Someone has Stop. to say, "Wrap it up." And now, could you could you rotate the GM if you've got, like you say, the three player
0: problem? You could fairly easily rotate the GM from session to session. Um, right. Or from scene to scene, even. Uh, that would be a little harder. I think you could still do it, right? You could still have the, I guess the person to the, to the right of the person calling the scene is the one who just performs that, uh, editing function. Mm-hmm. The other role of the GM is, uh, however, to play all of the other characters, mm-hmm. uh, because with few exceptions, you're not going to have a long running TV show that literally just has four to six cast members. It may seem like it sometimes. Right. But, wh- <laughs> you know, one of the, the solutions to what do we do next on this show is if you have a new character come in. Right. And so, uh, the, uh, other problem that I think people imagine when they read, uh, the rules is that, Oh, well the GM has kind of a crummy job and they're just sort of running referee and they're not going to have as much fun. Why don't, you know, why can't I get to play? Why not? Why can't I be a player instead of being the gym? But in fact, uh, being the GM is tons of fun because uh, you have the advantage, unlike everybody else, you get to play all the different other characters. So everybody else is sort of locked into one character, and you are uh, playing everybody else. And that's a fun challenge. Uh, and uh, the uh, other thing about this is uh, a player can invent a character and then make you play it immediately. So there's a level of challenge to that. And you could, uh, again play all of those characters sort of troop style, I suppose. Uh, but I think that is actually harder to do uh, than it sounds. If if you rotate jamming duties, not everybody is going to be as good at playing uh, Sam Smith as the person who originally created them. And that mm-hmm. those characters would either become more exaggerated over time or, or you kind of lose uh, your uh, feeling for them. So, could do that but again I, I don't recommend it I think that's actually uh, harder than it looks and so to move out to uh, a general the more general game design question is that every choice that you make in uh, designing a game precludes other choices and so it would be great for any given game to have every feature right it's like it would be great if drama system were uh, equally easy to run with two people as it is with six or you know it would be you know fabulous if uh you know in uh you know gumshoe if it didn't have this particular limitation or you know if you could run what if you ran gumshoe gmless uh well again that's a whole other kettle of fish that would require a, a yet another iteration of gumshoe that i think would essentially turn into inspectors um and there already is an inspector so there's a that's a reason not to do that, but that, uh, you know, there are certain ways that a game, once you design it, sort of creates a, a dynamic that, uh, is resistant to having every uh, possible feature. So sometimes you can address that. So with Gumshoe, it's like, what if you had a version for one jam and one player? It's like, well, you know what? Yeah. Uh, I'll do, do I'll do that. It's called Gumshoe one to one, but it turns out it's actually a radically different design. And then. Of course, we had people say, can you do gumshoe one-to-one with multiple players? <laughs> it's like, this is a game called gumshoe. And, uh, now, in fact, uh, you know, some of the design things in one-to-one did get reincorporated into at least one iteration of multiplayer gumshoe. And that's, um, the yellow king game. And we'll probably put more of those things in other games, but it's still not the same, right? That those, the implementation of those ideas, Back into multi is not the same, uh, as, uh, as it is in one to one because you need to create on a, on a sort of a fine grain detail level, uh, different features, uh, either elude you or, or have to be changed in order to be implemented and, and not every, uh, game, uh, engine can uh, equally well handle every possible uh, demand that people hypothetically want to place on it. So, for example, when you were working on Vampire, were there noticeable design constraints? Are there things that people always want out of Vampire that because Vampire is the way it is that that can't be uh, reasonably fulfilled?
1: I mean, I think with a game like Vampire, because it's a game, first of all, that has had such a storied history and has had so many different ways of playing it, uh, you have uh, I don't want to say incompatible, but you have two audiences, two lobes of the audience that are, they're kind of wanting different things out of the game. There's the lobe that wants sort of the, um, uh, internal torture and the, oh, the, the beast I am, less beast I become and the, and the sort of inward driven, if operatically expressed, um, uh, crisis. And there's the kind that wants to play global conspirators in cool shirts and, you can play both of those styles, but they sort of demand different mechanics or at least different emphases on the same mechanics from uh the GM and from the game designer. And so trying to build something that sort of exists in both of those worlds is very difficult because those are different sorts of gameplay. They, they require different sorts of attention mechanically because the mechanics should focus on the thing that you do in the game primarily. And so, uh I think every edition of Vampire after the very very first one started to sort of move the 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 the, the spotlight around and say oh this is the vampire if you want to play uh, that one. So if you really like the global conspiracy vampire, maybe third edition is your favorite, uh, vampire. If you really like the internal torment one, uh, then maybe, uh, you actually are wanting to play Wraith, but you can certainly, uh, come back around and you can either play very old vampire or we put lots of tools back for that in new vampire. So the notion of, you know, people looking at your game and saying, this game is so great. I want to play the game that lives in my head. When I look at your game, is good because that's the engagement that you want as uh, as an RPG designer. I mean, the reason we're making these games is for GMs to sort of take them and make them their own. If it was a you know game you played out of a box that never varied, then well, it, it could be an RPG, but it's not the RPG living up to its full potential at the table. I think is an art form. So. Even, you know, if, like you say, a uh, rotating GM version of Hillfolk might be a little clumsy and awkward, if you've only got, you know, four people uh in your game group, maybe that's – but you really love all the great stuff about Hillfolk, that's the game you're going to play. Similarly, in another game, in, in Call of Cthulhu, you might be saying, well, we really are having so much fun driving around Chicago and machine-gunning gangsters that we kind of want that to be the focus. Um, But also, yeah, there should be cosmic monsters that reveal all human activity is futile. So every game out there that's got any sort of an audience or a footprint at all draws this in if – only to the subject matter, which then will der- uh, drive the mechanical expression of the same game in play. And I think that you're sort of lucky as a designer, if people care enough about your game, they start want to start playing it, you know, I don't say wrong, but let's say playing it uh, outside manufacturer specifications.
0: Right. They, they just have a, a bigger ask for it than yeah. you can necessarily fulfill. Because the, the question that you look at as a designer when you get a request like that is... How deep into the experience are we going by making this change? So, uh, for example, quite uh, brilliantly in both uh, *Trail of Cthulhu* and then even more so in *Night's Black Agents*, you provide different modes of play uh, that install a, a different feeling at the table, but there's always fundamentally. Alan Barney up- made it up, <laughs> right? Uh, but, but those because you were doing that from the jump, you were able to do that within controllable parameters, so that right. a, a, a dust game. Uh, is is different from a, a... What's your name for the more Bondi version? I'm forgetting uh, uh,
1: well, the, the default is the more Bondi, but the stakes game, for example.
0: Right. And so you're able to keep an eye on the changes between those things, and it's, I assume, probably not a huge amount of feedback was hinging on the question of whether people chose to play it in dust mode or in, in stake mode, that the playtest experience was close enough from one another that uh, you were able to rely on everybody's playtest feedback. But if there was a GM-less option of uh, Hillfolk, that is so deep down into the experience, that changes the very way that you're relating to each other at the table and who has what mm-hmm. responsibilities, that that would need to be separately playtested entirely, uh, right. not only by the designer uh, at their own table, but you would need to find just as many out-of-house testers and probably more because it is a more complicated, uh, you know, having a GM solves a lot of problems, and mm-hmm. uh, going GMless opens up a lot of problems uh, that you would need perhaps even a larger group in order to get that to work. So uh, that's another question. With the the feature request is, is this something that requires a lot of? Is this change something that needs extensive testing, or is it a simple matter of oh, let's just tweak these numbers and? You know, maybe, you know, if you're doing an investigative version of an F20 game, as uh, uh, Gar Writer uh, uh, Hanrahan did uh, with Lorefinder, it's a question of, let's look at what's in, in that case, Pathfinder, and find all the things that wreck investigative games and take them out. Yeah, and then right. let's add a bunch of new. I mean, the same
1: sort of thing that they did in, in Ravenloft, where it's like, oh, you can't play Gothic horror with Dungeons Dragons this way. So when you travel to the magic land of Barovia, guess what? All the rules change, <laughs>
0: right? Uh, but you're still fairly certain that you know that that will all work out, and doesn't necessarily require you know a, a year of playtesting in order to right. put those ideas uh, forward. But if it was well in Ravenloft, uh you can't have a GM.
1: Yeah, then um, that would be a bigger deal.
0: Guess what? That's an entire new iteration of F20 that would require, uh, that much, uh, testing. So. Do
1: you think, do you think another part of it that maybe people are, um, uh, I don't want to say forgetting, but maybe making light of is that because, uh, Hill folk and drama system generally are so much about emotional conflict and contest, that you really sort of need someone who's structurally neutral or someone perhaps better phrased, someone that everyone can hate simultaneously to, <laughs> to weld the party together. Uh I mean, and, and that because that is so much a part of the table that either you would get The whole table breaking down in recriminations or toothless play that everyone could then pat themselves on the back and say, well, I think we really learned something here. And you've got the Lifetime movie game, not the real drama system game.
0: Yes, I think that's exactly the case, is that you need uh, a uh, one of the authors at the table has to be more detached than everybody else. And if you're spelling off those duties from one scene to the next, I don't think you're going to it's harder to move. Back from that detachment to an identification with your character and the uh, GM, guess what? It's a game by me, uh, requires some attention to the emotional rhythms at the table so that by being able to play other characters and to call, also call some of the scenes that you can, if things are getting way too intense, you can then, uh, put in a comedy relief scene or if things are getting too loopy and silly and you're losing your original desired tone, you can suddenly Crank up the stakes. And, and one of the issues in, uh, drama system is that people, uh, tend to be a little too non-confrontational after a while. Mm-hmm. And the characters all start to get along. Uh, and this is something you see on TV shows. The Spike well. and
1: Buffy problem.
0: Yeah. And therefore, boom, you've got to have something come in, uh, through the window to, to mess up Spike and Buffy's relationship. Or the which, swear
1: engine and Everybody problem. Yes, um, exactly. The, the, um, uh, the, the other, I, I think another thing that people may be, uh, looking at one and drawing to another is that Fiasco, of course, which is in many ways similar to Drama System is played GM-less. And so I think people say four people or five people acting out a, um, uh, a, a, a dramatic, uh, uh, story arc. Five people acting out a dramatic story arc. They must be similar mechanically or structurally in that. But I think Fiasco, because it has the sort of Cthulhu style buy-in where you kind of expect that your character will uh, be a Schlemiel who gets destroyed. That makes it easier to GM uh, your own, to play your own character from sort of an ironic distance that uh, drama system actively mitigates against. What do you think of that?
0: I think that's absolutely true. And an an even broader way to put that point in general is that, most other story games are the GM. The rules do the GMing for you. That they right. are trying to instill a very particular, often sort of one-time experience. Mm-hmm. And so they, uh, the rules do a lot of the judgment calling for you. And so you don't need a GM. Whereas Hillfolk, although part of that tradition, definitely is much more neutral in terms of what experience it's trying to instill right it just mm-hmm. creates a basic structure and you can do anything with it from a uh, super intense realistic drama to uh, a wacky sitcom to a uh, hard science fiction uh, and because it is trying to show you the unifying structural underpinning of all dramatic storytelling the rules never step in and say okay here's where the spiral into disaster happens or right. uh, here's where, uh, you know, all of the uh, the bunny rabbits get together and go on a picnic. It doesn't make that happen. And because the rules are more neutral, it needs a GM to step in and be part of the artistic process, because uh, I was looking to design, uh, as I often am, a set of rules that will get out of the way of creation at the table and, Rather than trying to foster creation, in which you are a secondary participant to the distant, absent uh, game designer, um, and uh, I guess we're, we're beginning to verge on a new topic, and therefore we must smother this segment in the crib so that the next segment may live.
1: Born of the U.S. government's 1928 raid on the degenerate coastal town of Innsmouth, Massachusetts, the covert agency known as Delta Green opposes the forces of darkness with honor but without glory.
0: Delta Green agents fight to save humanity from unnatural horrors, often at a shattering personal cost.
1: In Delta Green, the role-playing game, you play those agents.
0: Fight to save human lives and sanity from threats beyond space and time. The long-whispered-of slipcase set has
1: now shipped. This stunning edition includes two full-color rulebooks. The Any Award-winning Agent's Handbook features rules for creating agents and playing the game. Gear! Combat! Dossiers! The Handler's Guide for the Game Moderator who presents the mysteries and horrors of the Cthulhu Mythos.
0: Terrible Secrets of the Intelligence World and of
1: Eons Pre-Human. Percentile-based rules compatible with 20 years' worth of Delta Green scenarios and sourcebooks.
0: A universe of cosmic terror lurks just out of sight.
1: Can your agents stand against it?
0: The whirring of time gears and the cracking of chronotons tell us that we're once more standing in proximity to Ken's time machine. This, of course, is the conveyance that Time Incorporated uses to propel our hero back into history to bend, fold, spindle, and sometimes, yes, even mutilate it. This time around, Patreon backer Michael Matabal wants to know Uh, why time travelers want young Adolf Sachs dead. Adolf Sachs, of course, is the inventor of a number of musical instruments, and uh, the most famous of which uh, is not the only one he named after himself. He was born in 1814 in Belgium, uh, and by the age of 24, he was uh, beginning to work on changing instruments and designing new ones. So he at age twenty-four, he uh, significantly improved the bass clarinet, which was already pretty great. He uh, then went on to create the saxhorn, uh, which is a sort of a precursor to today's flugelhorn. Uh, for those of you who flugel, uh, but mm-hmm. of course, in uh, his most famous instrument, the one that is still uh, uh, very much part—not even so much of the classical repertoire as of the jazz repertoire—was uh, the saxophone, uh, which he invented in eighteen forty-six. Uh, Hector Berlioz was a, a big fan of his instruments and uh, incorporated them into uh, his compositions.
1: Berlioz liked saxophones before they were even saxophones. He liked the first sax horns. He was a big fan.
0: Yeah, he was a big fan of a sax horn. And sadly, uh, due to various, in part because of various patent disputes with other instrument makers, he wound up uh, dying of old age and incomplete poverty in Paris. Mm-hmm. But before all of that could happen, Adolf Sachs had to survive childhood. And Ken, uh, this is where uh, you come in, and so, uh, as Michael suggests, there were a number of suspicious incidents that looked like uh, the activity not, of course, of Time Incorporated, but of the at least one of the evil forces that you periodically have to battle.
1: Yeah, I, I think that the best way to do this is to do what Michael did and point us, and then by extension, our lovely listeners, to the biography of Adolf Sachs uh, by a man named Wally Horwood, which we are going to quote from, for the purposes of telling people how great this biography is, and also of what... Poor baby Adolf Sachs had to go through.
0: Yeah, so shall we? Let's uh, let's spell off our sentences here. Right. Uh, okay. So okay. So I'll, I'll do the first one, and we can uh, go back and forth. So before he was two, he fell. Uh, down three flights of stairs and cracked his head on a stone
1: floor. When only three, he almost expired through drinking a mixture of vitriol and water in mistake for milk, being narrowly saved by the application of liberal doses of olive oil. Right.
0: And they were, uh, Ken Heitbrand olive oil. I Ken Heitbrand. To, to get ahead of the story. Uh, I, I had it there from my, from
1: my dirty martinis.
0: Yeah. Three other poisoning mishaps uh, followed involving white lead, copper oxide, and arsenic. So, he was trying him some poisons, and he also swallowed a pin.
1: Huh. Well, you know, that that seems almost normal compared to the rest of it. Um, uh, and all, all this poison stuff, by the way, is around because his dad made musical instruments, so he needs all this stuff to, to shape metal and wood. Um, Anyway, but but we're not done nearly killing Adolf Sachs yet. A (laughs) gunpowder explosion—what?—gave him severe burns and threw him a considerable distance. He was again burned when a frying pan fell on him. A lifelong scar in his head was caused by a falling roof stone. Once, he went to bed in a room where some newly varnished objects were drying, being found in time— (laughs) Ha ha, thank you. You're welcome. To prevent asphyxiation from the fumes.
0: In fact, so, uh, people in his hometown in Belgium called him Young Sax the Ghost. (laughs) Now, uh, it isn't hard to imagine that the awful timeline that would have resulted had the saxophone... Had there been no saxophone. Never been invented. There'd, there'd be, be no... Uh, John Philip Sousa marches would not swing. Uh, there'd be no Coleman Hawkins, no uh, Sonny Rollins. No Coltrane. Coltrane. Uh, there'd be no Plas Johnson, and therefore uh, either no Pink Panther theme or a radically different Pink Panther theme. Jump Blues... Would have been very difficult. So possibly no rock and roll at all. And even if rock and roll had occurred, there would definitely not be the X-ray specs, a uh, world turned dayglow. Yes, there was saxophone even in in punk, but surely there is. Uh, so I have a, a couple of, of undoubtedly wrong theories about why enemy time travelers kept trying to kill off Adolf Sax and you have to keep saving him. One of which is it was just misguided time travelers going. You know, they had Alexa installed in their time machine, and they said, I have to go back and kill Adolf as a baby, and it picked and the wrong Adolf.
1: Exactly. I, I'm killing Adolf sex. Is that
0: good? Is that all right? Uh, <laughs> uh, so, Ken, what is there an even more uh, sinister version of of this uh of a saxophone-free uh, timeline that we need to envision?
1: Um, people who are killing Adolf Sax as a baby, um, which, by the way, was a great um, uh, Duke Ellington uh, song. It <laughs> wound up not being recorded because he couldn't record it because he didn't have an instrument for it. But anyway, uh, Duke was a great guy. By and large you get your sort of um, three classes of time travelers who want to kill Adolf Sachs. And I think maybe you're right that it began as a misguided Alexa command and then sort of spun up into its own uh, sort of 4chan style meme where people were all like, Oh, I'm going to go kill Adolf Sachs. But a lot of it was uh, people who hate, Military music, so they're pacifists who think if we can end the scourge of John Philip Sousa and cool marching bands, we will end World War I, because how can you march <laughs> off to World War I to a bunch of unfixed clarinets? You can't do that. It wouldn't be cool. Trumpets barely do it. You need a saxophone to swing you into the alarm vital that will pour you into the trenches. Yes, so we
0: all know there is no warfare before eighteen forty six. So Before eighteen forty six.
1: Sound theory can to blame the pacifists. <laughs> They're the people who want to kill Adolf Sachs. They are not the sharpest tacks in the drawer. The second people are people who are um uh, uh racists and they want to uh leave uh music pure of its mongrel influences, uh by which they mean uh jazz and uh and and all of the jump blues and the things that you're talking about. And if everyone just sticks to fiddles uh, the way grandpa did, there'd be none of this problem in the world. Right. And this they want part of
0: Henry Ford's plan to, uh, create square dancing to prevent- Exactly,
1: uh, to, to, to replace it. And I- I'm not saying no one can square dance to a saxophone, but I'm saying, why would you? Right. Uh, but the largest contingent of time travelers who want to kill Adolf Sachs are people who are just super sick of Kenny G. <laughs> and they can't kill Kenny G because he's too well protected. And I can't really get into why. But he is. Partly he was friends with Sinatra and you kill someone who's a baby he's friends with Sinatra and Sinatra's people will kill you as a baby and you can't be doing that. But, uh, the real problem is that they're just sick of it and that you spend a lot of time in elevators at Time Incorporated headquarters and anywhere else. And maybe something snaps in you. You have access to a time machine. You're like, I'm just going to fix this forever. So these are, these are rogue time incorporated, uh, elements. I think a lot of them are either from time incorporated or they're from a place that has an elevator and a time machine. And I can't right. think of a lot of places that have those.
0: Cause this doesn't seem like a Terra Reed, uh, sort of operation or a lizard people operation.
1: No, it, it does not. It, it, I think it's, it's really just that if they fix the Muzak in the damn elevators, we at the very least, people would be you know going to uh, oh, but
0: wait maybe I'm excusing the lizard people too early, though. maybe there's some sort of uh thrum or har- harmonic emanation from a saxophone that is uh irritating to the lizard person
1: eardrum yeah, I mean it's also possible, and I can't rule this out. I have not investigated this. It's possible that the saxophone being as we know the uh the instrument played in heaven by the cabaret band there uh contains powers that um uh, instill goodness across the land and defeat demons and reptoids and whatnot so uh it, it could be that the that the unique harmonic qualities of the saxophone are uh, specifically threatening to reptoids or other ultra terrestrials and by the way um just on a personal note for this uh, piece i looked very briefly into the saxophone and my theory is that someone with an occult turn of mind can turn anything into a secret conspiracy full of magic and weirdness. <laughs> yeah. If, if this show has any overarching lesson, right. it's that, but the saxophone article on, on Wikipedia, just on Wikipedia, not even a real saxophone article contains so many completely impenetrable technical terms to someone like myself for whom musicology is, is my, is my zero stat and my gumshoe sheet that, I, I just have to believe that that somewhere out there, and maybe somewhere not very far out there, there is someone who can look at that and immediately spawn the um uh, the 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 beautiful uh intricate secret war that I am missing. And so I just want to say uh, I'm just one time traveler, and I do a lot of drinking, uh. So I'm not getting everything. But if you are both of an occult Tim Powersy type mind and know your way around a spit valve you can probably do an excellent job figuring out exactly why Reptoids hate saxophones without us having to just talk nonsense about timber and harmonic qualities. So just, I encourage you.
0: Well, the the nature of the saxophone, it's sort of uh, smooth, lovely sort of uh, uh, kind of soothing or funky quality as I think uh, exactly the opposite of something that you would play at an occult ritual, right? That the whole point of ritual in music is to bring you, uh, not just to, uh, an excited state, which of course the, the saxophone is, is well equipped to do, but also into sort of a just disjunctive state. So, uh, you know, your, your trumpets, your, your higher register, you know, your sort of cornets or like the, the music of the, uh, you know, there are definitely brass instruments that can, you can envision being used in, in a ritual, but of course as, as soon as you get a, a funky saxophone in there, uh, people, you know, stop thinking, for example, about the, the ritual sex magic and just, you know, get into like a, you know, a more personal sort of amorous state of mind, which of course is, is anathema to, to ritual. So it may just right. be that the saxophone is too pleasant and, and joyous an instrument. And, uh, there might have been some particular uh, ritual that, you know, if you want to sort of destroy a, demonic ritual in progress the obvious thing to do of course uh as the player characters probably do is to charge in with in, with your guns and your torches and everything but if someone is you know summoning baphomet or or Sothoth, and you just show up and play the Panther theme yeah that that wrecks everything just bringing a smooth jazz combo yeah it doesn't expose you to danger it's uh you know you can do it from a distance um, you could, you know, and, and you also don't...
1: if you're, if you're, um, far enough along the jazz spectrum, you can take the discordant notes of their, uh, nauseous and cacodemonical ritual to borrow a phrase from our boy HP and, uh, riff on it, right? You can turn that into one of the lines of a bigger jam that buries everything. And you, t- uh, I mean, I guess the real worry is that you run into the sort of, um, uh, black man with a horn. Uh, concept out of T.E.D. Klein's uh, story Bl- Black Man with the Horns, the name of the story, but I, I suppose there is the possibility that because Neothotep exists to parody all good things of mankind, that he introduced the Shugoran into the world because the saxophone was so great that it had to have a dark, shadowy alternative, right?
0: Right. Now, there's certainly, you know, uh, forms of out-jazz, just as there are forms of atonal classical that um, oh, yeah, absolutely! So you could I mean, use in order to uh, summon things because they are disjunctive in that way. Uh, but it's probably the case I would think that the, the saxophone is the counter to the insane tootling of the of the flautists, the blind flautists that circle around uh, Acethos. So yeah. uh, there uh, there may well be an occult reason behind the uh, the these repeated attempts to uh, kill Adolf Sachs. You can tell. You know, a lot of these are just, uh, you know, straight up cultist stuff, dropping a roof stone on somebody, uh, poisoning, blowing them up. <laughs> yeah. They get increasingly more, uh, unlikely as they go along, but clearly there is an effort to, uh, disguise these things because of course, if they had su- succeeded in, you know, if a, sh- if a Shaggath had eaten Adolf Sachs, then you at time incorporated, uh, would have known immediately what to do. And, you know, worst case scenario, even if they got, young adolf you you have the plans for saxophones and you could have right, given yeah. them to one of his just many,
1: becomes the strubophone or something
0: right many many of the his instrument making rivals in paris would have been happy to have that so mm-hmm. uh, their attempt to uh that explains why they were trying to do it and make it look like an accident you know it becomes less realistic after accident number nine but you know time travel and the occult uh you know once you once you start mixing the different segments on the show that creates a level of sort of quantum instability which i guess means that we've got to get our way out of this podcast before all of our huts merge into one and uh, and everything explodes so uh before that happens folks uh we're going to clear out of here but we'll be back next week with clearly delineated separate huts one of which may still have a saxophone in it Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Ask Arc Dream. Dark Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music,
1: as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question-asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin.
0: Keep this podcast and saxophones alive by joining such Patreon backers as... Ariel Celeste. Derek Heimforth. Fred Kish. John Kingdom.
1: And Thomas Vallejos.
0: Snag Ken and Robin Apparel, another erudite merchandise at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Wear such shirts as Nobody Wants to Be a Gate. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when once again, we will talk about stuff.